the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review with Hugh Hewitt podcast, bringing to you the best voices on the stories and issues that matter. Helping make it all possible is the generous partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. Here's another piece I'll trust you enjoy. Joined now by Dr. Francis Collins of the National Institute for Health. Hello, Dr. Collins. How are you again? I am just fine. How are you this morning? I'm great. I'm dog sitting. So you've got an extra person in the studio with me this morning. Uh, Dr. Well, yeah, I'll try not to let my cat get on the screen because we might have a problem. We would. We would. <laughs> uh, Dr. Collins, I want to start with trials and then go to trust, the 2T interview. First of all, I got a bunch of questions from people who participated in trials when vaccine candidates were up. What is the advice NIH has for them on getting boosters or other vaccines or if they did a trial that wasn't one that ended up working? Well, that's something that is... Uh, up to the companies that they took part in the trials, I think virtually all of them, once the trial is completed, have been offered the chance to get immunized um, with either the vaccine that was approved because they were part of that trial, and maybe they got the placebo, or with a different vaccine. So yeah, definitely nobody should be compromised by having volunteered to take part in these trials, we are all of us in their death. 100,000 people for the Moderna, the Pfizer, the J&J trial made it possible for us to know that these things work. And they should certainly, of all people, be well covered now. So there are two categories. The, the sec- first question I get from people, I, it did work for me. My, my spouse got it. But now when, when do we get guidance on whether or not we have to get another booster or a second shot? Is that out there? Does that come from the people that gave it to you? So I think now you're talking about anybody who got vaccinated. Are we going to need boosters in the future or are you covered for the foreseeable? We don't know what the long-term duration is of protection uh, from the vaccines that are currently in more than 150 million people's arms. It's looking pretty good uh, when you look at the data we have, because we haven't had this vaccine out there for that long. It looks like the levels stay up pretty well over six, seven, eight months. But I don't know what they'll look like at a year or two years. Are we going to need boosters for everybody the way you do for your tetanus? The other issue, Hugh, is those variants that are out there. And so far, you know, we now call them alpha, beta, gamma, and delta instead of those numbers. Uh, So far, the vaccines look like they protect you against all of those slightly scary viruses that are more contagious, but they do seem to be protected. But I worry about what's down the line here. Will we see a variant emerge in the next few months, the vaccines don't quite work for, and then you'll need a booster for that. So well, you got to see, right? That zeroes us in over the target. Some of the people who got the trial vaccines are now past a year. They're, in fact, 15 months after or, or 14 months after they got the shot. What about them in boosters? Should they get one just to be safe? 
No, not yet. Not yet. It's looking pretty good. And again, the people who got the, tr the trials the earliest, the phase one trial, those were only a few dozen people. The big trials, the so-called phase three, uh, started at the end of July. And most of those people didn't really get injected with their first dose until like August, September. And they didn't have their second dose until a month after that. So the big data that we have to work on is more like seven or eight months. It's not a year, but it's looking good. So forthcoming. Now, let me turn to the National Institute of Virology in China, doctor. Uh, Josh Rogan and I have been working on this for a couple of years, uh, and uh, we're in our second year of looking at WIV. And you were in front of uh, Energy and Commerce. Kathy McMorris Rogers sent you a long letter full of questions. They got back a two-page non-response. Did you oversee that response, Dr. Collins? Because uh, McMorris Rogers staff is not pleased. <laughs> Well, it was quite a letter they sent. Uh, I think it was like 29 questions, 11 pages, 40 footnotes, getting deep into all kinds of territory uh, that was beyond our ability to come up with quick answers to. So we did our best uh, to try to be respectful and put forward a response on the high level issues. But uh, clearly, they want to have further conversation. I think we also volunteered that maybe this would be an opportunity to just talk to them instead of having this long list of questions and many, many, many pages of letters and emails. Why don't we actually discuss it? Well, now, doctor, this is where I'm not a scientist. I didn't stay at a, at a Holiday Inn, but I do know government, and I've been confirmed by the Senate. When I went up there, I had to answer every question when I got confirmed. And when I was a general counsel of agencies and my agency got asked questions, we had to answer every subparagraph why would the NIH not go to the effort of being fully responsive? Because it does give off the appearance of evasion. Well, I sure don't want to create that appearance, uh, Hugh. I think we want to be as transparent as possible. NIH has always uh, been in favor of that and of being responsive, regardless of who the questions are coming from. But this is an incredibly complicated story. Much of the information they're asking for, we don't have the answers to. Some of it is pretty sensitive, not quite classified, but getting close to that. So just didn't seem like this was going to be well served uh, by having a very, very detailed exchange of letters. And again, in our response, we offered uh, to have the chance to simply get into a secure space and have a conversation. Now, doctor, that would be... Uh, a good response, which is we need to do this in a skiff. But NIH got into trouble by arrogating to itself the decision-making authority. And I'm a big fan of Dr. Fauci, but he said I was trying to influence behavior, so I answered it differently than I otherwise would have. When NIH doesn't respond to congressionally authorized committees, that does raise questions of governance. We're a nation of laws. NIH is a creature of the federal government, and the Congress oversees NIH. So I, if I can go back around, I don't want to be rude, but I, I really think you ought to go down paragraph by paragraph and answer each question, even if it is we have to discuss this in a skiff. And again, I think that's the proposal we're making, but let's try to do this in a fashion that actually improves the opportunity for information exchange instead of making it very rigorous, very bureaucratic, very okay, 40 footnotes, 29 questions. We need your 30-page response to this. 
I, I'm not sure that's going to help us as much as actually trying as best we can uh, to talk to each other about what we know and what we don't know. There's an awful lot we don't know. You know, Hugh, this whole issue about whether something happened at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, nobody knows. <laughs> the really critical thing is there needs to be a thorough investigation. The WHO effort did not meet that standard. We need something that's going to be expert driven with complete openness by the Chinese government to give answers to questions they have not answered. We're really frustrated by that as, as well. And so for me to be able to say, well, okay, I'm going to answer Kathy McMorris Rogers' letter and it'll all settle. It won't settle it because we just don't know what happened. Well, yeah, but given a stab at it, uh, the best, best possible stab is, I think, so crucial to maintaining NIH credibility, which I think is vital. Let me go to the EcoHealth Alliance. Again, I'm a general counsel of two federal agencies in the past. I know how this stuff works. When you give a grant, the money ends up going to the Wuhan Institute of Virology through the EcoHealth Alliance. You're inevitably supporting all the research at any grantee because overhead is built into every grant. Now, there were two five-year grants. One was terminated, according to NPR. Doesn't that put the federal government in the position of having supported WIV at some level for some function? Because money is fungible. Well, we... When we give a grant, Hugh, it has terms attached to it of what it is that the grantee is supposed to be doing with those funds. And we require uh, annual reports to see whether that, in fact, is what they have been doing. And we trust the grantee to be honest and not deceptive. The grant funds that went to Wuhan, which were a subcontract from EcoHealth, were very specifically aimed to try to categorize viruses that they could isolate from bats in Chinese caves, which we had a good reason to want to know more about, given SARS and MERS that had come out of there. And so uh, we basically have those criteria attached to the grant. And of course, the amount of money that we were providing to the Wuhan Institute of Virology, I'm sure was a tiny fraction of their total funding. And we had no control over what else they were doing with those funds, that's another thing we'd like to know more about and an investigation might potentially tell us. So they have, so according to the uh, the head of the EcoHealth Alliance, they had collected 15,000 samples because of the grant, including 400 new coronaviruses. Uh, I have a larger question about whether that's a good idea, period, to go looking for the viruses that can then subsequently escape from labs, possibly. But more importantly, what I do know a lot about from my time at Justice and the White House back in the day is the Chinese Communist Party. And, and I don't know why we would ever trust the Chinese Communist Party, doctor. Even if EcoHealth Alliance is made up of great American scientists, they get 90 percent of their money from the federal government. So it looks to an outsider like a pass-through and a cutout organization that somehow gets money to the Chinese. And I wouldn't trust the CCP scientists because they, they don't have freedom of science like we do in the United States. You can tell people to pound sand. They can't do that. They'll end up in a gulag in Xinjiang. <laughs> well, Hugh, again, let me just try to argue, although I'm not sure you're convinced of it. Okay, we have had, prior to SARS-CoV-2 as a terrible pandemic, two other episodes of very serious coronaviruses that emerged apparently from bats in China. We at the NIH uh, have to think about what the next risk is going to be. Remember, thousands of people died from SARS. 
do we really want to just sort of say, well, we can't investigate that because it involves China and they have some political issues that we're a bit uncomfortable with? I think that would be irresponsible. So if we had the chance to learn more about those viruses, remember, when a pandemic happens, it's not limited to any part of the world. It's, it's global. If we have a chance to learn more about those in a fashion where we have an agreement about what research is to be done and that the results are supposed to be shared, shouldn't we be doing that? Or should we just basically close up and say, we're just not going to work with any country that has politics we're uncomfortable with? I don't think that would that, be responsible. Doctor, that's a kind of a shift. It's not that we have political issues with the government that we're a bit uncomfortable with. What I perhaps have a little advantage over you is I did counterintelligence at the Department of Justice. They are not uh, political issues with which we are uncomfortable. It's a totalitarian state that executes people, suppressed Hong Kong and runs prison camps and a gulag. And in fact, about which we have called, called genocide in the last two years. When the grant was made, that was not the case. I understand the danger. But when we combine my two issues, non-responsiveness to Kathy McMorris Rogers with the nature of a totalitarian Chinese communist regime, we have the reason for congressional oversight. Maybe we wouldn't be here with American money going to the CIV if oversight had gone effectively deep into the NIH policies and not through a cutout organization, EcoHealth Alliance. Does that make sense to you why my expertise would say, gosh, no, we're never giving money to the Chinese communist government ever? I'm still not convinced uh, that you're making a case that would change our responsibility as the leading organization for pursuing biomedical research in the world, including overseeing risks of a global pandemic. The one thing that keeps us all up at night, we still had to figure out the best way, not a perfect way, to try to gain that information to prepare for what might be a troubling problem downstream. So I, I think we had to do what we had to do. I'm totally open uh, to defending that and to being as transparent as possible in the appropriate place about what exactly we did fund and what we did not fund. But I think when the dust all settles, a reasonable person will say we were doing what NIH should do to try to protect the public against a terrible outbreak. Now, that's an interesting, that's a philosophical problem, doctor, because the question becomes, is there any regime that NIH would not fund directly or through a cutout organization? Does, does the, would you give money to North Korea, which everybody knows is the worst actor in the world? I mean, would you give them, they've got bats in North Korea as well. Would you send them money? Probably not. <laughs> Again, you know, I think you're demonizing the Wuhan Institute of Virology as it is pure and simple an instrument of the Chinese Communist Party. There are certainly connections there. But let's be clear. There are scientists working in that institute who are amongst the best in the world in terms of understanding virology. And many of those folks have had long-term relationships with others in other countries, including the United States, with a lot of respect, a lot of shared information. I don't think we should just basically say, well, because they're in that country, they're evil. I think you're going too far with that one. Science oh, I, I don't think the scientists are evil. I think the scientists are coerced. Have you had a chance to read Josh Rogan's Chaos Under Heaven yet, doctor? No, I have not. I would strongly recommend it. And that's just the latest of many books. I've been doing China and Russia and counterespionage for 30 years. So I know this stuff. There is not a free actor in China. There is not a scientist. Didn't someone from the virology lab get disappeared when they put the DNA code up? We don't know that.
Um, uh, I don't think, no, not the person who put the code up, who agreed as the plane door was closing uh, to allow Eddie Holmes in Australia to post it. Uh, that was a wonderful step forward. That made it possible for us to start our vaccine preparation within 24 hours, which is now saving lots and lots of lives. So there's an example of China being willing to make information available very early that otherwise could have readily been delayed. Oh, gosh, doctor. Now, last question, because we're running short on time. The president has ordered a new counterintelligence um, uh, intelligence community investigation. I assume NIH will be cooperating with that. But I want to go back to that oversight issue and that letter from McMorris Rogers and any letter from Senator Cotton or anybody else. NIH is a creature of the federal government. I think you've got to answer these because I want you and Dr. Fauci to maintain credibility. What's the what's where are we on that process? If they say, no, I want my letter answered. What's you're the director. What are you going to tell your general counsel? Uh, again, I think we have offered to have a conversation as the next step. I think that would be the most useful step and not to get quite so rigorous and oriented uh, in this fashion of letter exchanges and waiting to see how that might basically take shape. And if they disagree? Well, you must realize at this point, the White House is engaged. They are engaging in this larger level of investigation. We are not a completely free agency to just decide what we're going to do. We have to correlate all of our efforts with the Department of Health and Human Services, which I'm part of, with Secretary Becerra, and with the White House, right to the top. This is I agree with that. If, if they direct you not to answer, that's an executive privilege issue. But that isn't the case yet, is it, doctor? I think there are lots of concerns about exactly how best to respond to many of these very detailed, sensitive questions for which we don't have ready answers. So it has not been really resolved about how best uh, to handle this. Dr. Collins, thank you. Please keep coming back. It's a key issue for credibility. So I wish you good luck in satisfying Congress, which I was never able to do either. So <laughs> good luck on that one. Dr. Francis Collins from NIH, thank you for joining me again. Thanks, you. Have a one. You too. Thanks for listening to the Town Hall Review. Our program is coming today in partnership with the Pepperdine Graduate School of Public Policy. It's America's most unique graduate leadership programs offered on Pepperdine's breathtaking campus in Malibu, California. Learn more at publicpolicy.pepperdine.edu. If you're enjoying the podcast, please tell a friend to go to Town Hall Review and sign up as well today. This is Hugh Hewitt for townhall.com. Nearly a half century after the landmark Roe v. Wade decision, the Supreme Court has agreed to take up a case that could finally undo the vast expansion of the judiciary's power. The Roe decision established the right to abortion, and it arrived in January 1973 amidst a long season of American convulsions. The country was divided. The Roe decision guaranteed that the country's divisions would only deepen. In the Planned Parenthood v. Casey ruling in 1992, we saw an even greater assertion of judicial power on the issue of abortion. Roe and Casey should be overturned, and the issues of abortion rights returned to the states from which they were ripped in 1973. The repudiation of those cases should be accompanied by an admission of human error and the limits of the court's power to adjudicate every or even most debates. The sunk costs of five decades of judicial misadventure do not oblige the Supreme Court to continue in its error of 1973 and 1992. I'm Hugh Hewitt. 